to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott, that would be me, and radio host Emily Reese. Today, we're going to talk about blockbusters. This is stuff you've heard about, folks. No surprises here, but surprises all around. Yes. Check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Ms. Reese, welcome to Scores and Pours. Hi, Jill Mott. You excited for today? I am so excited for today. Blockbusters. Yeah, we're going to put in some actual sounds of explosions in there. I'm going to talk about, do you know how many times I get asked? Yeah, and I've I've said this on the show before in different, like in a little bit of a different, with different examples, and I've used this example, but I'm going to, we're going to obviously expand upon one of them. Can I get like a cab or a Pinot? So do you want it to be day and night at the same time? Like what, <laughs> you know, what does that even mean? I don't know. So I'm going to talk today about the fabled, the heralded Pinot Noir. I love that. Blockbuster of all blockbusters in so many ways. Yeah. Everybody's heard of Pinot Noir. You can you cannot even know why you like Pinot Noir, but you know what? It sounds kind of exotic, or it used to, and you can pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can. What are you going to talk about? I'm going to talk about two pieces, mm, technically five, but two, <laughs> uh, that you've heard before. And we're going to learn about their stories, because they both have great stories, and um, it enhances the listening experience, as they say. And when you say you, you mean me as well as all of our faithful listeners. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I've tested this on people. They're like, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. My brother and I used to side-by-side play one of them. Cute. Because we fell in love with it over McDonald's commercial while we were watching Superman 1. I would have a big chocolate shake, a cheeseburger... And also, whoops, and also fries. And I was and probably, I my like, my brother was four. Not give any to my I was dumb seven. Brother, and we would play. For Elise, okay, I just, I just, I've Well, let's one. start with it. Yeah, let's Should do it. Should we start with it? Yes. And then just imagine me, if you want, um, when I was seven, <laughs> playing this alongside my four-year-old brother. played this for my friend Holly, she said, well, I know that one because that's everybody's ringtone. Remember? Oh, really? In the early 2000s, that was everybody's ringtone. Wow. <laughs> wasn't my ringtone, but that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, super popular classical piece. Very I mean, popular. Everyone knows it. Why the heck do they call it for Elise? Well, that's what it was inscribed as, purportedly. There's a little confusion as to whether or not it actually did say Elise because it was transcribed... So someone else copied it, and that's the score that we have today. So this is a piece that Beethoven wrote in uh, about 1808 and never published it in his lifetime. And it was revised by him. He revisited this piece in 1822, which would just for context be five years before he died. He died in 1827. 
1822, he went back to this piece for Elise and made some revisions to it, which kind of only came out of the woodwork in the last couple decades. And so uh, we'll hear that too. But it's just interesting that this was never a piece that he published in his lifetime, so it doesn't have an opus number. So this is one of those examples, if you listen to our opus explanation episode, it says W-O-O, which stands for without opus, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, the the uh, number for that, did I write the W-O-O number down? 50, oh yeah, 59. 59. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just such a neat little nugget of of tune that just became so wildly popular and was uncovered by this uh, German music scholar in the 1860s and published by him. So this man, Ludwig Knoll, discovered this score and uh, transcribed it and then published it in 1867, and it just took off. Super and popular. When you look at it, like if you're looking it up on Spotify or whatnot and you look up for release, obviously there are many different recordings of it. Mm-hmm. But it says bagatelle or bagatelle. Bagatelle. Yeah. Which is I hadn't come across that term before or I'd seen mm-hmm. it but didn't really pay attention to it. Yeah. Um and a lighter, short composition. Yeah, right? just a short little instrumental piece. And just usually bagatelle. For, is it are they usually for piano? Usually piano, but okay. you know, once you get past about eighteen fifty, you'll see a lot of bagatelles for various different things. But Beethoven loves Bagatelles loved, for tin whistles. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yes. Some nose flute bagatelles. <laughs> um no, uh, Beethoven wrote a lot of sets of bagatelles and so it has become uh common knowledge, or what am I trying to say? It's it's agreed upon that Beethoven, when he went back to this piece in the 1820s and 1822, that he intended to put this in with a set of his bagatelles. So when he revised the piece in 1822, he actually added some sections and changed some of the accompaniments. So it's a real head trip. If you know if you know the piece really, really well, to hear the revised piece is pretty crazy. So let's do a little side by side. Yeah. Let's go ahead and listen first to the original so we can hear how the left hand sounds. Pay attention to the left hand, so the lower voice. Um, and it starts. Do, 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 yep, do, it do, starts do. on the beat in the first version that was written in 1808. It does not in the second version, which is okay. super cool. So, so here we go. Here's the traditional version that most people know as for release by Beethoven, the 1808 version. This, by the way, is a pianist named Long Long. So in the revised version, this section, you don't even hear this early. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. So let's listen to a little bit of the revised version then. I think it would be hard to play this version. 
Yeah, no, so that's weird. so weird. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 beautiful, but it's like my my ear likes the other one more, and oh, it's probably sure. just because I heard it first. Yeah, we're listening to uh, the version that is played by uh, Horacio Lavandera. Here's this random yeah, section what? that was inserted, and this. When you hear this, if you're familiar with Beethoven's bagatelles, it makes perfect sense. You're like, that's very bagatelle of Beethoven, (laughs) just to have these kind of character shifts like that. Yeah, so here's that, right? Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah, I get the biggest kick out of it. I think it's fascinating, and and I mean, you really have to wonder if, if Beethoven in his life had published one of those versions. I mean, clearly, if he published the 1808 version, and then republished when he published the 1822. Do, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, let's say it's 1823, and Beethoven is sitting around looking at his 1808 version and his 1822 version, and decides he wants to publish one. Which one is he going to publish? That's what I want to know. Is he going to publish that first version that we all know now? Yes. Because <laughs> yes. it's better, Jill Mott no, says. No, I think that he would say that first instincts, when you, when you start to go and you start to dig around, it's like, it's like when you spend too much time giving yourself a haircut, you're just fussing. So I, I bet he'd go back to his original with maybe some changes. Just kidding. Who am I? Who knows? He did. He is the one who would often like literally put holes in the paper because he would change it so much. So who knows? I don't know, man. Hmm. I was going to say, like, that looks like my wine key that's dull because I use it so much. <laughs> uh, speaking of, speaking let's have of, some Pinot Noir. Before you go there, I was thinking of, you know, why for Elise is so popular, right? Yes, it's easy to listen to. It's kind of it sounds lighthearted. Um, but I just did a, a quick research to see how many things it's been in, like how many TV shows and movies oh. and all that. And it was like... I mentioned that ridiculous commercial about McDonald's commercial. Yeah. It was in Charlie Brown's Christmas. We all remember when oh, for Elise. Schroeder, Schroeder plays. Schroeder plays for Elise all the time. Yep. Yes. Patch Adams. It was in that movie with Robin Williams. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> Nas even sampled it in his wow. I Can song. There's that. Um, and there, the list was so long yeah. that I just, you know, I figured I'd throw out a few of those new and old examples of yeah. how often for Elise has been in popular culture. And that mm-hmm. was, I mean, there are dozens. Oh, it, so. the list is endless. And again, the fact that it was for many years a pretty major ringtone. one of the oldest grape varietals that we have in the Vitis vinifera family that's still around. So when I say that, Vitis vinifera, like Sylvestris, when we think of those grapes that like Sylvestris, that they're wild. They You never have the same 
grape twice, right? If you go okay. go plant that, it would be something else kind of thing. Weird. Pinot Noir is Vitis vinifera vinifera, so a noble grape varietal. It's like Cabernet, a Cabernet Franc, I should say, Cabernet Sauvignon, Tempranillo. I think I mentioned that in an episode before. And so, of course, Pinot Noir is one of the most noble grapes and has been around for almost 2,000 years. Um, so it's one of the oldest grape varietals around. It's been around since the first you know, they think, give or take, obviously, around the first century, common era. And so around the time of the Romans. And the Romans were planting grapes all over their kingdom, including where we would consider the Mecca of Pinot Noir nowadays, which is in Burgundy, which eastern, so central eastern France. If anybody wants to do some digging, ridiculous digging, which is like, welcome to my world, look at the, look at the genealogy chart online and see how many grapes can thank Pinot Noir or the Pinot family for being born, whether really? it's like a great, great uncle, a great, great this, a sibling, wow. a whatnot. So yeah, it's pretty awesome. Pinot's at like the top of the food chain in the genealogical chart. It's pretty so great. so cool. Um, uh, there's a really cool book called Five Gazillion Grape Varietals. Well, no, but it's called like Wine Grapes or something. And there are literally thousands of grape varietals in this book from Jancis Robinson and uh, Jose Villamos. He's a Swiss um, amphilographer and like geneticist for um, studies of DNA of grapes. And it's a pretty awesome book Neat. for those of you that are into the minutia of grape varietals. I'm going to fast forward kind of quickly through the history of Pinot Noir, um, but I think we should taste this first. Yeah, right? let's do it. I'll talk about the producer later. But and we'll talk about characteristics later. But you know, just wet the whistle and see what you think. We don't drink a lot of Pinot Noir on this podcast. I think we've only had one or two so far. It smells like cherries, like dark cherries mm, to me. Yeah. And it's hard to find. We're drinking a more naturally made and organic uh, Pinot Noir, which is fairly hard to find these days because there's a lot like Sauvignon Blanc and a lot of the noble varietals that are very sought after. They're heavily planted. And so most of the time they're very, they're conventionally farmed and industrially produced. But so this is a producer that is not, and I'll nice. talk more about that in a little bit. What do you think it tastes, the, the, the flavor? How does it taste? Mm. Yum. Yum. So fun. Mm-hmm. Juicy. Yeah. Bright acidity that kind of follows through the whole palate. Um, mm -hmm. Very common for great quality Pinot. Okay. And not very tannic. Nope. This is done in six months in, in some older French oak. Can I ask you to freezer this? Because this is room yep. temperature right now, and I think it's going to taste even better with a little chill here. I'll put some yeah. more on your slight bit oh, more sure. on your glass just to last you. I'm going to breeze through the history of Pinot Noir up until it starts to become more about Burgundy than it does about Pinot Noir. Interesting. Um, just to, just because I think it's really fascinating to know that, you know, the reason that Pinot Noir gets the reputation that it does as being like one of the most highly lauded grapes and the most terroir-driven grapes, meaning like you can taste ex where it comes from and it resembles the soil and the climate of a place is because throughout history... First of all, you had the Romans who were already planting grapes, specific grapes to specific like soil types, slopes, like the aspect was important they to the Romans. Knew some things. Yep. Yeah. That when we go through history and we arrive at the monastic influence, so around the Middle Ages, when we have 
what we would call Gaul, present-day France, was converting to Christianity. A lot of these incredible plots of land ended up in monastic hands. And monks and the church had a lot of cellar space and storage so they could cellar bottles and they could see what happened to them. Hmm. They could, they had excellent record keeping skills. They had plenty of organized labor, lots of, lots of, pardon me, but goddamn time, you know, (laughs) uh, no pun intended. And so they basically expanded upon the Roman efforts of trying to find out what grapes did best in what areas. And it just so happened that Pinot Noir did really well in, you know, very specific soil types, very specific aspects. And of course, Burgundy was like a place that it did that in spades. And when we think of how did these most prized pieces of land, like Clodebez is a vineyard that you mentioned that to any wine burgundy hound, and they're going to know exactly where that is. They're going to know exactly how big it is, the characteristics of it. Clodebez was part of the Abbey of Bez like centuries ago. We think of Charlemagne. Charlemagne is a plot within a bigger plot of Corton Charlemagne. And this is a super famous plot that Charlemagne gave to a monastery. And why did why did lords and kings and, you know, n- nobility do that? Well, to save their souls. Let's give these really <laughs> expensive pieces of land to the church, and then we can all go and pillage and raid and still go to heaven. Like, I mean, it's like, it makes sense. So this is all happening. We're, we're around like the 600, 700-ish common era when we're talking about yep. the monastic time. And I think I'll stop there. I think let's let's... Go back to more music. We can oh. stop in the 700s, drink some wine, yeah. listen to some music, and yeah. we'll go. We'll fast forward like 600 years. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> we'll arrive at the 1300s before you knew it. Love it, and we'll be able. To, we're going to talk about this this piece on and off for the rest of the time. So just interject whenever you'd like. Cool. This next one you've heard. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah. Wum. Yeah. So Wum. <laughs> uh, that is one section of a large set of pieces written by a Baroque composer named Antonio Vivaldi. It's called The Four Seasons, and you've heard it a million times. <laughs> that was the first movement of the spring concerto. So let me tell you what all that is that I just said. The Four Seasons is a set of four violin concertos that Antonio Vivaldi wrote in about 1716 or 1717. Vivaldi lived from 1678 to 1741. So, you know, these written in 1716 and 17, he published them in 1725. Vivaldi himself is a truly remarkable fella and taught for most of his life at a school for girls who were orphaned or illegitimate, and he directed the orchestras there. And these were, like, tremendously talented ensembles. So he had this vehicle to, to write music for, for students and um, did his own writing, obviously, and, and all of that. Uh, Vivaldi nicknamed the Red Priest because he had red hair, so oftentimes you'll see him referred to that in, in history. So next time I want to listen to it with you, I can be like, 
Put on some Red Priest, Emily, <laughs> and you'll know exactly who I'm I talking about. I won't play Norwegian death metal. I'll play Vivaldi. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. So as I said, there are four violin concertos. So spring, there's four concertos. Spring, autumn, summer, winter. They're not in that order. They're in this order. Spring, summer, <laughs> autumn, winter. <laughs> and um, each one has three movements. The coolest part about it to me, though, is that each one has an accompanying sonnet. So this is literally program music. This is music that has a narrative that accompanies it. Nobody's really sure if Vivaldi wrote these sonnets or if he found these sonnets and wrote music to the sonnets, but they fit perfectly. So if we listen to Spring again, this is what just the first couple lines of the sonnet are for Spring. Uh, springtime is upon us. The birds celebrate her return with festive song. So if you listen to the first, oh geez, like 30 seconds of the first movement of spring, you hear the birds interrupt mm -hmm. in the middle. So let's, let's listen to that part again. Here come the birds. Anyway. Each, each movement has an accompanying little story with it. I mean, a sonnet. So it's, it's just fun. It's fun to read the sonnet and listen to the music because he reflects all that stuff in there. Yeah, and it it's, seems more like, because if I were to hear that on the radio, I'd be like, next. Yeah. But if you have that, that context, it gives it mm -hmm. an extra layer of beauty. It is super. It, again, I highly recommend reading the sonnets while you, while you play the music. Yeah. And drink some Pinot Noir. It's a 45-minute, you know, bout of fun. Are we going to breeze through the second and the third movement of the first concerto or no? Nah, I figured I'd just pick one movement from each concerto. Love it. Yep. Okay. By All the right. way, it's it's worth saying that these are short concerti. These are not... 30 minutes. You can listen to all four of them in a half an hour, basically. I mean, they go by I pretty quick. Oh, I thought it was all four was like between 40 and 45 yeah, probably minutes. Probably 40 minutes. All right. Yeah. Because okay. each each concerto is about 10 minutes long. And so. then let's be honest, for those of you who are listening to Scores and Pours, you're already awesome geeks. So you're going to like pull up the sonnets and you're going to be like, oh my God, I forgot the wine. And so <laughs> it's going to be 45 minutes plus. Yes. So, but, um, but yeah, so let's yeah. dive into... Oh, you want to listen to a movement of summer? Yeah, let's get into summer and then I'll, I'll Pinot Noir. Yeah, it's hot enough of, for summer today here in yeah, uh, Minneapolis. <laughs> you've been waiting for us to say that for months. Yeah, pretty much a year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so the second concerto, being summer, uh, is a little more volatile because of severe weather, right? So we're going to listen to the storm, which is the third movement of the summer concerto. The presto. And this is also one yes. that's really blockbustery, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. This is one example. We've talked about this, like how composers use music to symbolize events like the ocean or whatnot. Yep. And this is one that's often used for a storm. And just wait for the rushing of the falling rain with the scales. I'm air violating over here. I can't hear Emily. I'm just... <laughs> That's probably my favorite part is the falling rain. It's super cool. Wind. I want to say, too, what we're listening to, because this is one of those that's pretty important. So, because this is a, a Baroque piece, this is from the Baroque era. So whenever you see that there's music from the Baroque era, you can be like, well, do I want to listen to an orchestra that plays on Baroque instruments, or do I want to listen to a modern era orchestra mm -hmm. that doesn't? We've had an episode on this, so you might want to familiarize yourself again with Baroque performance practice if you like, but basically, they're two different things. And I really feel passionately that when listening to Baroque music, one might want to listen to a Baroque orchestra. and It's like my version of if you want to drink wine, it's, let's pick a nattier thing yeah. because it's truer yeah. to origin. Exactly. Okay. Yes. So the problem with this piece is because it's so pop, these pieces technically, right, the four seasons, you can think of them as one big unit, I guess. It's so popular that it's like hard to find. You have to kind of know the Baroque orchestra or know the names of some Baroque orchestras because in about... Order to, in order to find it? Yeah, because when I searched it on iTunes, about, I'd say, all but one or two of the recordings that came up were really? all modern orchestras. That's how popular this piece is. So, <laughs> so I searched for one of my favorite Baroque violinists. Her name is Elizabeth Volfish. She's amazing. Elizabeth Volfish is playing here with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, which is a really good Baroque band. Well, before we jump into autumn, I'm going to jump back to the 1300s. Let's do it. And and talk a little bit about how. So we're still in Burgundy. We have we're in and we're in the height of the Burgundian era. Meaning, you know, there are the Dukes of Burgundy. There, there's lots of money. A very prosperous time for that for that region. And Philip the Bold. So we're like right in the middle of the 1300s. He is saying, let's uproot Gamay. In all these certain, you know, these specific places, and plant Pinot Noir. If you have Gamay planted, not a good thing. And then we have Philip the Good, 
uh, you know, 100 years later or so in the 1400s, and he's banning up in the north, there's a lot of flatlands in Burgundy, and he's saying no Pinot Noir is going to be planted on these flatlands because these flatlands are not good for Pinot Noir. We know Pinot Noir needs this aspect and this type of soil and whatever. Okay. So now you're having rulers be like, oh, you can't plant, you got to plant your Pinot Noir there. So <laughs> just to show you the kind of history that this grape has, which I find super exciting. And as the Romans have done things, monasteries have done things, rulers have done things. We see quality for Pinot Noir and the region shooting up. And what happens as quality rises and things, what happens nowadays? So does the in Burgundy as quality goes up for Pinot Noir, so does price. And now Pinot Noir from Burgundy is some of the most expensive wine in the world. It's some of the most allocated wine in the world. And the vineyard area, like if these people were to go and sell their vineyards, are like... They're, they're unattainable fiscally. Oh. Um, so a super extensive history of Pinot Noir. Right now, there are approximately, I guess to say in acres, because I have it here in hectares, but it's about 288,000 acres of the world plus is dedicated to solely Pinot Noir. And when we talk about Pinot Noir and characteristics, butla. Could you go and fetch our wine from the freezer, please? <laughs> yes. There's a great book for those of you who want to dig deep into wine history books. It's called Every Man His Own Butler, and it's fascinating. So we put this wine in the freezer for just a quick chill because it was room temperature, and uh, in Minnesota right now, it's a uh, happy 80 degrees. The wine isn't obviously 80 degrees because it's cooler where we're recording, but we wanted it because it's natural. Um, sometimes it just shouldn't be room temperature. It should have just a slight chill on it. So a characteristic of Pinot Noir, let's start with color. Most people think Pinot Noir is a light wine. And when I say light, I mean people come to me asking for a Pinot Noir because they think it's light in body. When in reality, Pinot Noir is light in color. It's light in pigment. So Cabernet has more pigment, which has nothing to do with Body. You hmm. can have heavier Cabernets, lighter Cabernets. Okay. Same with Pinot Noir. So when you look at the color, it's got this pretty ruby, like light ruby. There's not any purple. There's not any dark elements no, to it, right? Much more of like a like a brick red, like a like an orangey red. Well, and but we don't mean like orangey, like it's aged and oxidized, no, right? No. Okay. Yeah. So you're meaning like just a little tinge of like that brick color. Um, when you smell Pinot Noir, I know Emily alluded to it perfectly when she was like, God, it smells like a fresh, super, like a super fresh cherry. Mm -hmm. That's very classic Pinot Noir. Do you smell that kind of undergrowth? Like if you were walking through a wet, damp forest? Sure. Like that's very classic Pinot Noir. Now, there are plenty of yeasts that have been selected to, you know, mimic this Grand Cru or this region or whatever, pardon me, but whatever bullshit you want to go throw your packeted yeast around. But like, True Pinot Noir without pitched yeasts is one of the most beautiful, pure things in the world. I also think I'm saying that 
because we have 2,000 flipping years of history <laughs> to figure that out. Yeah. There are grapes that have as much potential as Pinot Noir. We just haven't gotten there with the experience, you know? Now, on the palate, what do you think? Interesting. Seems to have mellowed it out a little. I think this is a really rich, like in a, the glycerol content, like it's not heavy. Yeah. It's definitely medium bodied. Yeah. But it's got like this rich enveloping fruit characteristic of like the red fruits are off the charts and they just surround yeah. my whole mouth. Yeah. You know, they can have a lot of different acid is, is available in Pinot Noir. You can have low acid if you have some tricked out Russian River Valley, California, 15% alcohol, that's not going to have a lot of acidity. But <laughs> normally, you know, Pinot Noir has about medium acidity. And if you pick really early and it's not ripe and doesn't smell like anything, then you'll have 10% alcohol and really acidic Pinot. So, <laughs> But by and large, Pinot Noir is like a medium bodied, light to medium bodied, medium acid grape yeah. with not a lot of pigment. And what we're drinking now, it's from the Loire Valley. This guy, his name is Hervé uh, Viamud. He's one of my favorite producers in this region for very affordable wine. Just northeast of Tours a little bit, um, he grows one of my favorite white grapes, Romo Rontan. He grows some Sauvignon Blanc. He makes some Chenin, Gamay. He's kind of all over the place, but this is his like everyday affordable Pinot Noir. You know, it hovers right around the low to mid-20s, depending on the market you're in. And Pinot Noir is inevitably expensive. You go online to look at California Pinot Noir and ante up, because unless you're buying conventional BS, yeah. it starts at 40 bucks. Jeez. Usually, right? And even Oregon, some of my favorite producers, friends of mine making Pinot Noir, you're starting at 38 bucks. Wow. And going up from there. And that's for stuff that like... It, the terroir driven doesn't start to get into the. It, it is in the picture, yeah. but we're not talking Burgundy in terms of history well, that's being my planted point. there. Is it? Like, I mean, how is it possibly thirty eight dollars? Well, because they're because it's Pinot and they're jacking up the price, right? I mean, well, it doesn't cost them thirty six dollars to make it, and they're putting it on the market um, for thirty eight. You know what? Probably somewhat close to that, but the reason why is Pinot is incredibly finicky to grow. Okay. It's a very it's very fickle in how it develops and so if you have a bad year for it's way easier to have a bad year for Pinot than a bad year for Tempranillo, let's say or Cabernet or something. That fascinates me with the uh, with the ubiquity of the grape itself and its long history that it would be that temperamental. Well, when you say ubiquity, I mean there are places out there when you're getting paying 6 to 8 dollars to 9 dollars for a glass of Pinot that's, you know, an 8 ounce glass of Pinot Noir that's likely quite conventional and you're not paying for finicky grapes. You're paying for, there are, there are additives to that, enzymes, colorants. Okay. And so yes, there's a ubiquity in the plantings, but that doesn't necessarily mean all of those are of high quality sure. and in a finicky place being like how they grow, right? So yeah. when we talk about finicky and we talk about place, Burgundy Right now, if you were to go buy the creme de la creme of Burgundy, it's $33,000 a bottle. <laughs> we're, we're talking about Domaine de la Romaine Conti, and they make a, a various vineyard sites, but their most, they're most lauded and most expensive is, is Romaine Conti, um, a very small plot. And the times that I've had it, I've had old Romaine Conti, and I've had brand new Romaine Conti of the, of the new vintage. And when things are that expensive, you start to... It isn't just good because it's expensive, mm -hmm. it, but you start to ask the question like, well, is it like if I could afford this, you need to be able to afford it, right? Because mm -hmm. I can taste things like that and 
thankfully, I have like the judgment in my mind. I don't care what the label says to be able to say, oh my God, that's worth $33,000, right? The history is incredible. The producer is an amazing producer, but it's not even worth questioning because you need to be able to afford that or be yeah. lucky enough yeah. to have those experiences. So right. how does that, I mean, when you taste it, the the thing is, is when we talk about these microplots in Burgundy, I urge you to just go online and Google one region in Burgundy and Google like however many vineyards there are in a region, 50, 200, and you start to see all these little ludi. And if you tasted, there was a time where that's all I drank was Burgundy and all I would taste and all I would buy and all. And you start to be like, I can't believe that that tastes different. And it's a, it's like three rows away. But at, at the same time, then the price starts to become a thing where, well, how much is that worth? Yeah. And and you have to wait for a certain amount of time for things to be able to, you know, a three-year-old can't necessarily express itself in a way that you could understand, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, bigger concepts. And so yeah. you need to find Burgundy in the perfect moment for them to start expressing those places. Mm -hmm. So then what? Then you spend $33,000 and open it in the wrong moment. You're like, Oops. So it just, it becomes like a place in time and it's obnoxious. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I love Pinot Noir. I wish I drank it more often. I kind of got really sick of how much I was spending on it. And <laughs> I don't know. And just like the BS surrounding some of the whole terroir discussion. I don't know. What do you think about this little guy? Because we are going to do a Burgundy episode. We're going to taste. Nice. I, have, I have old Burgundy in my cellar. It's more than 10 years old. You and I will open it up for a, an idea I want to pitch to you after this episode. Excellent. So, so scores and pours. Scores and pours. Do you want to jump into autumn or do you want yep. me to talk about this producer? Should I talk about this producer later? Let's autumn. Let's autumn we, and winter do the producer. We cheers and we're out. And because I get to talk about, well, not I, we get to talk about Bacchus. When? Yeah. We, we get to talk about wine. When we talk about the four seasons, which I yeah, love that. Yeah. I like the hunting song the best in autumn. And so so the third concerto that makes up the four seasons is autumn. And autumn it just might be my all-the-way favorite one. It's hard to say. I do really like them all. But autumn for the third movement has a hunting song, and it's just great. So let's talk about the which, hunting which song. Movement? It's the third movement. Okay. So and then we'll go back to the first and the second, because the, the first movement is where the party is, and then everybody gets drunk and sleeps through the second movement. And I think the first the first movement is also the one of the three that I thought was the most recognizable for folks. I don't know if you agree with that. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, do you want to just start with the first one then? Might I mean, as well. It's chronological just go in order. Yeah. So so yeah. So the first one is fun because it's like this pastoral kind of peasant dance. And I'll say to you what I said to a friend of mine, just picture, if you will, Looney Tunes and just a bunch of peasants in Looney Tunes having a dance and a party. And now let's listen to Vivaldi's First Movement of Autumn.
Now, just as you're listening, I'm going to tell you right now that all of my backyard barbecues are going to start with this. And it's going to be like, this is, just start drinking, people, and enjoy yourselves. And people will be like, why? Because... Because here's read the, the sonnet. sonnet. Let's read the sonnet. I, ha- I have it written right here. Oh, go for it. Celebrates the peasant with songs and dances, the pleasure of a bountiful harvest, and fired up by Bacchus's liquor. <laughs> amen. That's my amen. <laughs> Many end their revelry in sleep. Yep. So and, that's, and again, amen. Amen. So those four lines describe this particular movement. So if we listen to the whole movement... Then it kind of winds down at the at the end, and then everybody sleeps. It's just so good. Everybody just gets all tired. Bye. <laughs> Can I crash on your couch? Somebody's man? crying right now. So. <laughs> 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 or people like singing by the fire, yeah. and it's kind of getting slow, and the the speech is getting slurred. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is still the first movement. We're still in mm-hmm. this. This is everybody's. You know, things are wine. Bar close is coming. Last call, people are fumbling about for their wallet. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The barkeep is like, and you're not driving, and you're not driving, and you're not driving. Let's go to the third movement, your favorite, the hunting song. Okay. Well, do you want to listen to the part where they're all sleeping? Sure. halfway in their sleep and they're like man tomorrow's gonna not be good <laughs> you know tomorrow's gonna suck <laughs> if they were drinking some natty pino that wouldn't be the case but it's true they were probably drinking some adulterated bullshit during this time yeah probably but that's pretty great like if you were to listen to this i mean people just listen these people are, it's hung over. this is a hungover piece of music right here it's like <laughs> it's like shh turn the lights off <laughs> We've never been so there. No, I've never been drunk. Okay, so the last movement, which is Emily's favorite. I love the last movement because I love a good hunting song. I They're always really fun and happy and just buoyant. You can hear horses galloping. You know, they're on their horses galloping and the dogs are running alongside and they've got their hunting horns. Did you? Just, I can't believe, I, I, I never knew that about you. Hashtag... I love a good hunting song. (laughs) What? I do. Check it out. Who doesn't know this? This is so good. I think this was in my best friend's wedding. 
good. this part yep <laughs> I mean they're just bouncing along on their horse early morning they're ready to go to the hunt it's fantastic they've had their kombucha and cider blend <laughs> to wake them up after this they had a business. raw egg mixed in some orange juice yep yeah um, so I'll just read you a little bit of this sonnet the hunters emerge at the new dawn and with horns and dogs and guns depart upon their hunting. I mean, that's fantastic. Nothing like uh, blending hangovers with guns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's so good. Yeah. Oh, so I that's a little it. bit of Autumn by Vivaldi. It's probably my favorite of the four, but I do, I, I really do have a special place in my heart for all of them, no matter how overplayed they are. <laughs> it's it, They're beautiful. Um, should we talk about this one and finish with... Yep. with Winter? Yeah. I, I chose this producer because in the Loire Valley, you know, there's a, a melange of grape varietals, dozens of grapes, and some of the most popular being, you know, for white, Sauvignon Blanc and Chenin. But inevitably, the stars of the show are Cabernet Franc, Gamay to some extent. And nowadays with, you know, the the emergence of natural wines and in obscure grapes, you know, Pinot de Aunui, we've we've focused on Here's some Pinot Noir in, in the Loire Valley. Usually is in a blend. A lot of people don't do it on its own because they can make more of a blend, you know, in terms of quantity mm-hmm. and sell it for maybe a little bit more money. But I chose this guy because he's been organic since 2000. And he, we've talked on the show before about Beaujolais. Yes. We talked about Gamay and that mm-hmm. gang of four. What made him want to go to the dark side, which is the bright side, natural wine, was Marcel Lapierre, one of the members of the Gang of Four. Okay. And do you know the white wine that I recommended to you, that Claude de Toubouf that you love, the Frulis? Oh, it's so good. So when he tasted Thierry Pouzelot's wines for the first time, okay, he was like, well, this is it. Yeah. Uh, between these two guys, I mean, I want to make wines like they do mm-hmm. with native yeast, little to no filtering, little to no SO2. And so this is his, you know, his Pinot Noir. It sees six months of oak, usually older oak. It's got carbonic maceration uh, employed. So it, you know, or partial carbonic. So you do get these lifted, heightened aromas. It's sort of like putting Pinot Noir under a microscope. Sometimes that flavor is getting harder and harder to find, um, especially for this price, $25 bottle of Pinot. Um, and, And is just really something pretty from a region that you don't expect this grape, I guess, Neat. or readily expect this grape. Soils here are clay and silex, and I can talk about that in a second, but clay gives a bit more girth in the mid-palate okay. sometimes, I find, and silex soils, like flinty soils, sandy soils. Hmm. We could talk about how silex form, but I won't because that's getting away from Pinot and will bore <laughs> the hell out of people. But silex can sometimes give this sort of flinty nature, but chiseled chiseled palate. Yeah. And I really think that it's just a really, really fun wine at a great price that's made in a, a really pure way. Nice. 
Hervé, I think it's delicious. Hervé Viamad, thank you. Thanks to Dresner for bringing these guys in. Yeah. Pinot Noir. It's true, um, which I think means black cone, actually. Would you like a, a little refill? I would. Thank you. Before we get into... Winter. Winter. And my one of my least favorite seasons, but one of my favorite movements of this piece. It's piece. so good. This is... Like the spring movement where you hear the birds, that's so what we would call programmatic. Like you can hear birds singing in there. This, what I love about the winter concerto in the Four Seasons is how you can hear the ice and the wind. And it's so, just the way he asks the the string players to play and and how he writes for them, you can hear the ice. Just, and I mean, it's it's crazy. So before we even hear this, I want to read to you how this sonnet starts, and it starts thusly. To tremble from cold in the icy snow, in the harsh breath of a horrid wind, to run, stamping one's feet every moment, our teeth chattering in the extreme cold. Now, we know as Minnesotans. I was just going to say, that sounds like me from... Exactly what the fuck that feels like. Yeah, that's that's (laughs) December through like... March, it's late October through yeah. late April. Thanks. Really? You're, you're 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 being. I'm being generous. So you're you right. are. You're be, You're trying. To, it's like you're trying to get people to move here. Yeah, like, I don't want that to happen. The truth. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, with that said, let's listen to people trembling in the cold in the icy snow in the first movement of the Winter Concerto from the Four Seasons by Antonio Vivaldi. This is what it sounds like when I open my door to go outside in the winter. (laughs) Just aggressive. it's just the biting it's just the bite he nails that bite my friend holly calls this fancy chaos (laughs) fancy chaos oh my gosh Holly, you're hired. My favorite movement, do you mind if we play it, just a small little part, is uh, the second movement of the last concerto. The second movement is wonderful. Let's look at the sonnet for this one. Before the fire to pass peaceful, contented days while the rain outside pours down. (laughs) 
I just I like the exchange. I like the just the different textures of the strings, mm-hmm. and I like how there's the drama that's happening is happening all in a smaller register. This isn't grandiose. It's not like yeah. lots of like like uh, you know. It's not chaos. It's not. It's just very. That's all. May I one last thought on Pinot Noir? Yes. I do think a movie, which everybody should see, it's semi-outdated at this point only because we're well past this, but in 2000, I think it was four, a movie called Sideways came out, and it starred Paul Giamatti. He loves Pinot Noir. He's like, plays this kind of douchey aficionado, and at the same time, he says he hates Merlot. But at the end of the movie, he's drinking old Merlot out of a Dixie cup, and it's like this thing he's been carrying around with him forever, which is kind of the, the jokes on him, right? He, he yeah. doesn't know it's Merlot. Okay. I've never gotten more in the two years following that movie, can you recommend to me a Pinot Noir? I hate Merlot. Like, it's it was amazing. Wow. But it did make a lot of people dive into Pinot Noir, and yeah. a lot of people with money spent mm-hmm. money on California Pinot, South African Pinot, whatever, wherever it may be. So the movie's fun. It's cute. It's lighthearted. And um, if you just want a, a little piece of uh, cinematography that deals with Pinot Noir, it's, it's, a, it's a cutie. And nice. it helped uh, gain popularity for the grape a decade plus ago. I've thoroughly enjoyed drinking this Pinot Noir with you today. To scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours. And we're also on Instagram at scores and pours. If you like the show, you know what to do. Consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Mm-hmm.